Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. Today God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised for him. Promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, and Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him. What if only forty are found there, he said. For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty could be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so this morning, for the uh, 16th year in a row, I was notified that I had been named the best dad ever. Thank you. Uh, so all, to all the dads out there, better luck next year. This is, my, this is my annual Father's Day joke, so I had to squeeze it in today. Uh, the, the sermon series that we're in is called In the Beginning, and we've been saying that the Bible begins to take on new life in your own life when you start to read it as your own origin story. Uh, the Bible is telling you your story and the story of the entire world. That we've been looking at stories throughout the book of Genesis as our own origin stories. This is how we're going to best understand what it means to be a human, uh, what it means to be a fallen individual, what it means to somebody who's open to redemption. And today, uh, with our text before us on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the title of our sermon today is Abraham and the Justice of God. I find it fascinating that here the themes of fatherhood, kind of God engaging Abraham in kind of a fatherly back and forth, 
And the themes of justice, the themes of Juneteenth kind of converge today in our text. And so while the story has a lot to, th to, a lot to tell us, uh, I'm actually convinced after my study this week that this text is primarily about the mysterious justice of God. And so what I want us to do is to look at this passage and ask ourselves, what does it teach us about the mysterious and beautiful justice of God? So let's look first at our modern search for justice. Secondly, we'll consider the uniqueness of God's justice. And then lastly, we'll consider the one who does justly. Okay. So first, our modern search for justice. Uh, justice may be one of the most important values shared by our culture today. And for good reason. What I love about this text, if you look at verse 20, what is it that moves God himself to act with justice? What is it that God cares about that creates this desire for justice? Well, verse 20 tells us what God hears is he hears the outcry in Sodom and Gomorrah here in this story. He says, the outcry of that city has reached my ears. Now, Robert Alter, who's a Jewish uh, scholar and, uh, of Hebrew, he says that that word outcry in Hebrew refers specifically, and here's a quote, to the shrieks of torment of the oppressed. It's the cry of the oppressed. It's the outcry of those who are exploited. It's the outcry of those who are wrong. When that outcry reaches the ears of God, he moves for justice. And in our culture today, you and I, we've become profoundly aware of the cries of the oppressed. The Bible tells us you and I, regardless of what we believe, we're made in the image of God. And so when we hear the cries of the oppressed, when we see the suffering of those who are vulnerable, it stirs within us this deep impulse for justice. And ours is a culture where we've become pr uh, profoundly aware of all the oppression in the world. You know, some people would say that a lot of the outcry against um, policing would not nearly have been loud had we not seen real videos of innocent victim being victims being killed. Uh, many would say that the outcry when it comes to the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement would not have nearly had the impact that it's had in our culture had it not been for things like social media that gave victims a voice so that their cries could be heard, so they could not be silenced. Or you take even the war in Ukraine, where we don't just hear of news of war halfway across the world, we see suffering in very real images right before our very eyes. Or even on this Juneteenth, many scholars, historians would say that it was the death of Emmett Till that sparked the modern day civil rights movement. And the reason for that is Emmett Till's mother, Mamie, refused to have a closed casket funeral at the death of her, I think, 14-year-old son. And it was the visual image of this young boy, body almost unrecognizable, that sparked this outrage and a demand for justice. When, we, when our ears can hear the actual cry of those who are oppressed, when our eyes can see human suffering, we were made to seek a God of justice. We were made to desire the day when things would be put right. We were meant to 
to feel moral anger until evil is punished, until the vulnerable are protected. And so our culture today is in search for justice. Where will true justice be found? That we share this outrage and yet we're unsure about where to go in order to find justice. And here's this interesting moment. Here in this moment when we all would agree that there is a need for justice, I would contend that we actually lack the moral resources to come to agreement on what justice is. That we actually lack the shared moral resources to understand what are the grounds for justice? What do we mean by justice? So let me try to give you a very, very quick over, overview of where I think we are today. There was a time where in the West, we would ground our view of justice in the moral character of a God. And so we knew who God was, God revealed in Scripture, and because of the moral character of God, we had a shared understanding of a justice grounded in a God who is unchanging. But as kind of Western civilization moved on from there, our grounding of justice went from a moral God to an impersonal moral law where we remove the idea of a God and now it's a universal absolute law from God, character of God to an impersonal moral law. We went from moral law to moral re reasoning where we said we're all rational characters. So morality is not grounded in God. It's not grounded in a moral law. It's grounded in a moral reasoning. From moral reasoning, we move to moral intuitions. We all instinctively know what justice is. And to now at a point where we have nothing left but moral feelings. If I feel this is wrong, then it must be wrong. We've jettisoned a moral God. We've jettisoned a belief in a moral law. We've jettisoned the belief that there's moral reasoning that we share together. We've jettisoned the notion of a moral intuition inherent in who we are. And all we have left to ground our experience or desire for justice is my moral feelings. I feel this way and therefore you cannot tell me whether what I feel is right or wrong. Now here's the problem with that. Of course our moral feelings matter deeply and profoundly, but when all we have to go on are subjective moral feelings that different people experience differently, do you realize what happens there? We've lost our ability to persuade one another that this is right and this is wrong. And all we have left, the only recourse we have left is coercion. This is my moral feeling. I have no resources to persuade you that my moral feelings are right. So what's left, all I can do is to co coerce you morally to submit yourself to my moral feelings. And so now we find ourselves in a situation where questioning any feeling that somebody feels is moral can lead to complete and total rejection. In a moment where we recognize that we need justice more than ever, we've lost all of our moral resources to agree on what it is and to pursue it together. And the problem with all that is this, what that leaves us is that it leaves us essentially with a form of mob justice. It becomes what political philosophers call the tyranny of the majority. That if a majority of people feel a particular way, then it must be right. 
It must be just. We've lost all of our grounds for persuasion, so all we have left is a court of public opinion. Due process is something that maybe happens, but we've already judged guilty until proven innocent. Do you see how all these themes fit together? We are a culture that recognizes profoundly we need justice, but we're also a culture that is in the throes of not being able to agree on what that justice would look like. And so it's an environment where now, as those who seek to do justice, perhaps most passionately, are also those who've justified their perpetration of injustice for their own cause. You see the irony, do you see the impossibility of the situation we are in today? Now that's the world that we're in. And maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and maybe you felt some of those themes. What I wanna to suggest to you today as we turn to this text more directly is that there is a uniqueness about the justice of God that you will not find anywhere else. Okay, so let's turn to that. This is the second point. We've looked at our modern search, our quest for justice. Secondly, let's, let's look at the uniqueness of the justice of God. So if we turn to this story, I don't know if you can put verses 23 through 25 up on the screens here. What I love about this entire story, interaction between Abraham and God, is that the entire story begins with Abraham questioning God's justice. This is how the story begins. So verse 23, what does it read? It says this. Uh, Abraham approached God and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So God has just shared with Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom, I'm going to destroy Gomorrah. The outcry of the oppressed has reached my ears. I'm going to go and confirm to see what's going on there, but I'm going to destroy those entire cities. And Abraham has an issue with that. And so he comes and he questions the justice of God. And he says in verse 23, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham questions the justice of God, and you might be here doing the same. You're questioning, can the God of the Bible be trusted? Is the justice of God sufficient? You might be here and you said, all I've seen is hypocrisy in the church. All I've seen is the perpetration of abuse in the church. All I've seen is racism and exploitation. Or maybe you're here and these questions of justice are far more personal. And you say, how could I trust the justice of a God who would allow this tragedy, tragedy in my life? That you come questioning the justice of God, but that's exactly where Abraham is. Do you see yourself in this story yet? And Abraham comes and he questions the justice of God. But what I love even more about that is that, did you notice that it's actually God who invites Abraham to question? God says, Abraham is like a friend to me. Of course, I need to tell him that I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God invites Abraham into questioning. Or if you look at verse uh, 22, what you see is God is there with two companions. The two other companions move on, right? The other two men turn away and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing. So you get the sense that God lingered back with Abraham and said, Abraham, I sense there are questions. Let me stay back with you. Let's have this conversation. So here's a God who not only allows you to question his justice, he actually invites it. 
He says, where do you wonder whether I could be trusted? Where do you question whether my justice is true? Come, let us reason together. And Abraham begins to haggle with God around the question of justice. But as Abraham presses into the question of God's justice, uh, the, the question I want to ask is, what does this tell us about the nature of the justice of God? So I think there are three things here. I'll try to move quickly, okay? There are three things about God's justice that you will not find anywhere else. And this is what Abraham discovers. The first thing that we discover is this. God's justice is both justice and righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 19 where it says, For I have chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Other translations will say, by doing righteousness and justice. Now, what do those two words mean? So I'm going to do a very, very quick Hebrew lesson here. Okay, ready, class? We're going to learn a new language today. We're going to do some duolingo around biblical Hebrew here, okay? So there are two words there for justice and righteousness. The Hebrew word for, that's translated justice, so wherever you see justice, it's probably this Hebrew word in the Old, Old Testament, is an Old Testament word uh, that is mishpat. Okay, so that's, a, that's the word for justice, mishpat. And usually what mishpat means, it means rectifying wrong. So when a judge rightly sentences a wrongdoer, the judge has done mishpat to the criminal. Okay? Or when a judge treats the poor and the rich equitably under the law, the judge has done mishpat to those who are accused. So it's what we today would call rectifying or retributive justice. It's justice that sets right. And in one sense, it's a very narrow understanding of what justice is, isn't it? Just setting something that's wrong, setting it right in a fair sort of a way. But the Bible actually also says this about mishpat. Mishpat, God does mishpat to the wicked. But more often than that, the Bible says God does mishpat to the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Now you say, what does that mean? What does it mean to do mishpat for the poor? Because mishpat is not just rightly sentencing criminals. Mishpat is rightly advocating for the vulnerable. That in the justice of God, justice is not just we are equals under the law. It is that. But justice is also those who rightly advocate for the voiceless and the most vulnerable. And so the notion of mishpat, of justice in the Bible, is actually much broader, I think, than some of our current understandings of what it is. But it's not just mishpat. The Bible says that the way of the Lord here is both mishpat and righteousness. The Hebrew word for righteousness is sadiqah. The sadiq are the righteous ones. Okay, so what does sadiqah mean? What is sadiq? In English, when we hear the word righteous, what do you normally think of? Normally, we think of something a little bit negative. We probably think like self-righteous. Or if we don't have a negative connotation, righteous is very individual. So somebody who has an individual moral standard, who's maybe kept his or her life pure before God by not engaging in wrongdoing. And so for us, righteousness is profoundly individualistic. But in the Bible, righteousness is actually profoundly social. 
So the one who is righteous is not someone who's kept their hands clean from doing wrong. The one who is righteous is the one that you can trust to do right by their neighbor no matter what the circumstances. It's deeply and profoundly social. So there's this proverb that says, when the righteous prosper, the whole city rejoices. Why would the whole city rejoice when only one class of people prospers? Well, the only reason that would make sense is the city understands that the righteous are those who will use their prosperity to benefit everybody. It's profoundly social in nature. Or Bruce Walking defines the righteous as this, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. The wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. And so if the justice of God includes both justice and righteousness, do you see how broad the Bible defines this term? It means that when you choose to not use your resources to advantage the community, you're not just being selfish, you're being unjust, according to the Bible. Do you see how broad that is? And so the, the justice of God is profoundly broad. It's both justice putting right what is wrong, but it's also righteousness, doing right by God and neighbor with everything that you are. It's a profoundly broad thing. But there's a second thing that we learn about God's justice here, uh, and that, the, that is that the justice of God includes both justice and mercy. If you look at verses 23 through 26 uh, there again, normally we oftentimes think of justice and mercy as being opposites. But if you look at verse 23, listen carefully to what Abraham asks of God. He says this, he says, Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it all away uh, and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people? And far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. And then he says this, will not the judge of the, uh, of the earth do what is right? Now that word, do what is right, in Hebrew is actually do mishpat. Now did you notice what Abraham is saying there? He's, he's, saying, he's not saying, look God, if there are, let's say, a thousand people in the city of Sodom, and they're doing violence, they're doing cruelty, they're people of hatred and evil, and there are just 50 righteous people in the city of a thousand, do you notice what Abraham is asking? He's not saying, God, give me like a week and I'll get these 50 righteous people out, and then you can go to town on Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, you could do whatever you want. And that's not what Abraham asks, is it? What does Abraham ask? He says, if there's a city of a 1,000, and there are 50 who are righteous in it, he's saying, it would be unjust of you, because of these 50, to not show mercy to everyone else in that city. It would be unjust of you to destroy this city, even if there are just 50 righteous people within it. See, the justice of God includes what we would call mercy. That they're not opposite. Another way to put it is this, exacting remorseless justice, according to the Bible, is not justice at all. That the justice of God includes this appeal to mercy. And do you want to know why that is? If justice is just an abstract idea, 
or if justice is just a legal concept, or if justice is just a moral principle, you can't combine justice and mercy. They're opposites. But if justice is found in a person, a person who is perfect in all his ways, do you see how perfect justice would actually include mercy? Because it's combined in the very character and very nature of God. And we know this. So Brian Stevenson is a criminal justice lawyer. He wrote a book that I think perfectly combines these two themes. You remember the title of Brian Stevenson's book? It's Just Mercy. And what Brian Stevenson understands is a profoundly biblical concept. It's this notion that justice alone without mercy is not just. Mercy alone without justice is not mercy. That what we are seeking after, what we desire in our hearts, what we need as a society is a just mercy. What we need is actually the very mercy of God. And so Brian Stevenson writes this. He says, the power of just mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. It's when mercy is least expected that it's most potent, strong enough to break the cycle of victimization and victimhood, retribution and suffering. It has the power to heal the psychic harm and injuries that lead to aggression and violence, abuse of power, mass incarceration. He's saying what we need is not more justice. What we need is not mere mercy. What we need is a just mercy. It is the very mercy of God. You will only find here in the Bible justice and mercy combined in the very character of God. You can't combine those unless there is a God, a person who combines those things in perfection. And so the justice of God includes both justice and righteousness. It includes both justice and mercy, but there's a third component here that has kind of become controversial in our day and age. But if you look at the Bible, there is nothing controversial about this idea. The third notion is that the justice of God is both individual and corporate, both at the same time. So here again, notice Abraham does not say, God, give me time to get the individual righteous people out and then go to town on all those wicked, cruel, violent, evil people. For Abraham, when he thinks about justice, he's not thinking in terms of individual morality or individual guilt or individual goodness. He's saying, look, this entire city has done wicked, has done wickedness, and so everyone is complicit in the wickedness of the city. And Abraham is asking, but if there are a handful of righteous, is there something that moves in that other direction as well? The cries of the oppressed in this city are so great that everybody bears guilt. Everyone who participated in the system of the city bears the guilt of that city. And yet Abraham asks, but can the righteousness of the few be applied to the many? You see, what you see throughout the Bible is on the one hand, you see places like Ezekiel 18, where Ezekiel says that the sons will not be held uh, guilty for the sins of the father, and the fathers will not be held guilty for the sins of the son. He who sins will die. A very, very clear statement about individual righteousness. You cannot bank on the good things your family has done if you're not a good dude. Your individual righteousness matters. But then you have other places like Exodus 20 where it says, I'm the Lord your God, 
And I punished the children for the sins of their parents of the third and fourth generation. Numbers 14 says the same thing. Deuteronomy 5 says the same thing. Jeremiah 32 says the same thing. What God is saying is that both your individual righteousness and also the righteousness or wickedness of the community to which you belong, both of those matter profoundly in the justice of God. Because in your community, you were shaped by that righteousness or wickedness. You contributed to it. You participated in it. And so it's both those things combined. Look, you take a justice that is as broad as justice and righteousness. You take a justice that combines both justice and mercy. You take a justice that takes seriously both individual and corporate evil and sin. And you have a justice in the Bible that you cannot find anywhere else. The justice of the left and the justice of the right fall embarrassingly short of the justice that we see in God. Because what we need is not the principle of justice. We need a person of justice. And that's the God of the Bible. And leads to our third and final point. We looked at our modern search for justice, the uniqueness of God's justice. Third and finally, let's look at the one who does justly. What I love about the story here is that there is a clear narrative tension that's building throughout, isn't there? You see, Abraham, uh, he comes to God and he says, for 50 righteous? I love the line where he says, but what if there are only 45? So you, for five fewer righteous people, you're just going to, so for five you're going to destroy? How about 30? How about 20? And the entire story builds to this natural climactic moment. There's this tension that's built up where ultimately uh, Abraham asks 50, 45, 30, 20, 10, and you expect in all of that, for all that tension to build, and you would expect the climax of the story to be a point where Abraham says, but God, what if there is one who is righteous? Just one in the entire city of Sodom. Just one in the entire city of Gomorrah. And yet what happens? Abraham pulls back before he can ask that final question. You almost get the sense that Abraham loses his nerve to go that last final and obvious step. You see, what Abraham is doing is he's exploring a very, very important biblical question. And that question is this. Abraham knew, God, I know that the wickedness of a few creates guilt for the many. I know that. But the question he's asking God, God, can the righteousness of a few create salvation for the many? Just 50 Will that create salvation? Just 45, just 30, just 20, just 10 righteous. Will their, do you love their righteousness so much that it will mean salvation for the many? And Abraham risks his life to ask this question. You notice all the time he's like, far be it for me. I'm dust. I'm ashes. Don't get mad. I'm sorry. I just got to ask one more time. Abraham knows he's risking his very life to try to explore this question. He says, if wickedness can be transferred to many, if the wickedness of the few can be transferred to many, what if the righteousness of the few 
can be transferred to. And he risks his life asking God all the way up to the 10. And in that final moment, he loses nerve. And you get the sense that the sinking feeling must have came over Abraham. Where he must have said, even as he's about to ask, isn't there, what if there is just one? The sinking feeling must have come over him where he must have said, there must not be a single one in all of Sodom, in all of Gomorrah, that even Lot, his nephew, was not in any stretch of the imagination a righteous one. That Abraham had the sinking feeling there's not a one, and you have to think that Abraham even looked at himself and he says, my righteousness is not enough. After all I've done, Abraham standing in the gap, pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, is there 10 who are righteous? What if there's one? But there isn't one. And I imagine for Abraham, one of the main reasons that he backed away, one of the reason, main reasons that he recoils from this final question is that Abraham knows what he is about to ask. He's about to say, God, we know there's only one who is righteous. And that's you. And Abraham trembled to ask the question that begs itself here. Abraham feared to ask, God, if you are the only righteous one, would you lay down your life and allow your righteousness to cover the wicked? And of course, thousands of years later, we would meet the one righteous one, Jesus Christ. The one whose righteousness alone was enough in the sight of God. Jesus Christ, the one whose righteousness alone could bear the full weight of the justice of God. The one whose righteousness alone could drink the entire cup of God's wrath all the way down. The one whose perfect righteousness would be the salvation for anybody who would come and trust in him. That it's Jesus Christ, the thing that Abraham dared not to ask. God, you're the only one who's righteous. The only way we will be saved is if you give your righteousness to us and you take your wickedness on himself. The one thing that Abraham trembled, dared not ask of God was exactly what God was planning to do all along. And friends, he did it. He did it for you. He did it for me. And in this cultural moment when we're seeking after, where can we find a justice that satisfies? Where will we find a true justice that will heal? Friends, if this is what the God of the Bible has done for you, if this is how the God of, Bible, God of the Bible combines justice and mercy, justice and righteousness, justice for individuals and for us all, if this is how the God of the Bible handles his justice, this is a God you can trust. His justice is what you're looking for. And so let's come to him as the one who ju does justly, the one in whom we can trust. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we ask that you would, by the power of your grace, take everyone here in this room, everyone in our culture, all of our neighbors, all of our friends, everyone in our city who are searching for a just world. Lord, I pray, Lord God, that that search would lead them to you, to the God who alone can do what is truly just. Lord, we thank you that in you we find a God who combines both justice and mercy because if you were a God only of exacting justice, there would be no hope for any of us. And if you were a God who was a God only of mercy, there would be no justice in this world. The cries of the oppressed would go unheard and unrectified. And yet, Lord, in you we have a God who combines both justice and mercy. And rather than wiping us all out, Lord, you'd rather die in our place so that if we turn and place our trust in Jesus, you could grant us your forgiveness. And so, Lord, I ask that you would turn our hearts towards you, that even as we seek justice in our neighborhood here, even as we seek justice in our city and in the world, Lord, help us to seek after the justice that only you can bring to embody the justice of God in all that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.